Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to episode eight of our podcast series. This podcast features material from our May 2021 edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim, the Editor-in-Chief of that edition. This podcast will focus on harm from resident-on-resident interactions in aged care homes. We present two cases where the deaths of aged care facility residents were investigated by the coroner's court. The cases describe how the interactions between two residents resulted in one of them dying and the circumstances surrounding these incidents. The podcast begins with my editorial. We then examine two case reports in detail. The second half of the podcast contains an expert commentary which explains the role of Dementia Support Australia, an organisation that provides clinical support in managing complex behaviours of people with dementia. I also encourage you to visit our website where the large number of relevant resources are listed. A final note is that this podcast narration is uh, brought to us by Will Thomas. Um, So you'll be hearing a different voice um, on this occasion. Let's now listen to the editorial by Will Thomas. Contents of this podcast include Editorial Case number one in my room Case number two Not so great expectations. Expert commentary number one, who do I call? DBMAS. Expert commentary number two, a geriatrician talks to a psychiatrist. Editorial. Welcome to our podcast of the RAC Communique, which examines resident-on-resident aggression. Dr. Huang Nguyen, a geriatric medicine specialist, presents both the case reports. Drawing on the findings from two inquests into the deaths of residents following an assault by another resident, the cases highlight the importance of having robust, proactive systems in place and the dangers of complacency or accepting aggression as normal or usual behaviour. Although we have addressed resident aggression previously, it remains an important and ongoing issue 
that impacts residents, families, staff and the broader community. The Royal Commission highlighted inadequate staffing levels and lack of training as systemic problems in our aged care sector. Both are underlying contributory factors to the occurrence of resident-on-resident aggression. Our expert commentaries provided by Dr Stephen McFarlane, a practising psychiatrist for older persons and clinical director of Dementia Support Australia. DSA is an organisation that provides clinical support in managing complex behaviours of people with dementia across the whole of Australia. Our expert explains the nature of the different services available and how to access their support as well as reflecting on their experiences. On this occasion, I encourage readers to consider accessing the original coroner's findings as both cases went to inquest, with many days spent in the courtroom with multiple witnesses, and many expert opinions heard. While our case pricey for each captures the essence of the findings, which were 33 and 76 pages long, there is benefit in each residential aged care service, taking a much closer look at the full findings. Finally, we note that the Federal Government has accepted the Royal Commission's Recommendation 96 responding to coroner's reports, which stipulated that it become part of the new Aged Care Act. In essence, this recommendation requires that the relevant body named by the coroner in their finding describes what action it has taken or intends to take in relation to the coroner's recommendation within three months of receiving the report. Let's now listen to a description of our first case report titled, In My Room. In My Room. Case Pracy author, Dr. Huang Nguyen. Clinical summary. Mr. X, described by his daughter as a kind and gentle man, entered a residential aged care facility in June 2016 with a diagnosis of dementia. He had some loss of short-term memory, problems with orientation, and a history of wandering and occasional episodes of verbal aggression. Mr. X was admitted to the secure unit within a residential aged care facility that accommodated residents with mild to moderate behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia. The unit had 13 single rooms and 11 dual company rooms and was staffed by four care staff, one registered nurse, RN, and there was one activity officer during the morning and afternoon shifts. A team leader was also present in the mornings. Mr. X moved into a shared room with Mr. NC, who was 78 years old and had been a resident of the facility for about two years. Mr. X initially made the transition into care well, but after a few days wanted to leave. He exhibited verbally aggressive behaviours and became increasingly more paranoid that staff were keeping him from his family, spying on and trying to poison him. For this reason, he was prescribed risperidone, an antipsychotic agent, for agitation pro renata, PRN or as required, by his general practitioner, GP. The first recorded act of aggression took place on the 25th of November. Mr. X was attempting to leave the facility and as he was being escorted back into the unit, he grabbed a staff carer around the neck. The electronic records mentioned that the family were informed and a staff incident form was completed. There was no evidence that the GP was informed or any entry in the behaviour identification and interventions chart or modification to Mr. X's care plan or the filing of a critical incident report form. In December, Mr. X stated to a staff carer that he was going to wring someone's neck today and demonstrated with his hands. On a separate occasion, he was seen walking around wielding a belt threatening to put it around someone's neck. On the 18th of January, an altercation occurred when Mr. X pulled Mr. NC from their shared room by dragging him from under the arms. 
The RN put Mr. NC on close observations at 15 minute intervals until morning, but there was no entry in the behaviour, identification and interventions chart for Mr. X. On the 22nd of January, Mr. NC was found on the floor. Later the same day, Mr. NC's cousin who was visiting had to take him from the room due to an aggressive approach by Mr. X. The electronic records indicate a note from the RN that staff reassured family member that Mr. X is not like this when it is just Mr. NC and staff in the room and he's not in any harm's way. On the 24th of January, loud screams were heard in the unit. When staff attended, they found Mr. NC lying in the doorway of his room with Mr. X standing over him yelling aggressively. When staff intervened, Mr. X verbalised that he was in my stuff so I dragged him out. I should kick him in the head until he's dead. On the 28th of January, Mr. NC was found bleeding on the ground with Mr. X, holding a walker near him. Mr. NC was hospitalised with multiple injuries and died 13 days later from those injuries. The RAC facility manager reviewed the CCTV footage on the 30th of January and confirmed that Mr. X pushed Mr. NC with force. Mr. X was sectioned and transferred to an older person's mental health unit for further assessment and management. Pathology an autopsy by a forensic pathologist determined the direct cause of death was complications of head injuries. Investigation An inquest was held over three days to investigate the death. Evidence was heard from experts including geriatric and mental health medical practitioners. Statements were received from care staff and executives employed by the aged care providers, as well as from the Aged Care Quality and Safety Agency. The inquiry sought to ascertain one, whether there was adequate supervision of the residents in the unit leading up to the incident, and two, whether adequate and timely procedures were in place in the facility to review and manage behaviours of concern. The coroner made no criticism of the staffing levels at the facility, but acknowledged that the management of Mr X's behaviours was given insufficient attention due to poor record keeping and breakdown of communication between care staff and senior staff, such that the latter had incomplete knowledge of the nature and extent of behaviours. The coroner noted that the sighting charts used by the facility could not capture the demeanour or state of mind of Mr X to inform a safety-slash-risk management plan. The coroner noted that the aggressive behaviours displayed by Mr X from December 2016, preceding those directed at Mr NC, were of sufficient seriousness to warrant review by the GP, a case conference, and then a referral to National Dementia Behaviour Management Advisory Service if necessary. The incident of resident-on-resident -resident aggression between Mr NC and Mr X on the 28th of January should have been the subject of a report to the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission for an independent review. The coroner confirmed that Mr NC's death was a direct result of complications from head injuries resulting from a push by another person. Recommendations The coroner made a number of recommendations, including 1. A series of amendments to the facility's clinical management Management of acute behavioural disturbance slash behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia, BPSD. Guidelines 2. Consider environmental contributing factors such as whether a resident shares a room. Allow the resident to be moved to a single room or have one-to-one -one staffing as part of emergency care if necessary. Remind staff of the need to report and record all internal assessments and steps taken in relation to a resident displaying BPSD. Clarify when conferences may be required. 2. 
consideration be given to developing a policy to provide guidance to staff about disclosure of the relevant risk factors to the next of kin or person responsible for the resident at risk of resident-on-resident -resident aggression within the facility. 3. All communications via letter, phone, fax, email between facility staff and the GP should be kept in the resident's electronic file. 4. Consideration be given to developing and implementing a chronological summary of residents' BPSD-related acts of aggression, both verbal and physical, for the purposes of internal management and review, external clinical review and case conferencing as required. Author's Comments Caring for residents in aged care with behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia is a difficult endeavour and requires good daily processes and routines with capacity to respond to more acute changes. Resident aggression is a growing concern in this environment where it poses a workplace health and safety hazard for care workers and a threat to the safety of other residents. Most incidents of resident and resident aggression, RRA, involve those with a history of dementia or behavioural problems inclusive of wandering and aggression. Incidents commonly take place in the afternoon in communal slash shared areas and involve a push and a fall. They are often unprovoked but can also be triggered by communication difficulties or perceived invasion of space. In one particular study, 32% of those involved in an RRA incident had been involved in at least one prior incident in the preceding 12 months. In the case study above, Mr X had multiple risk factors for becoming an exhibitor of aggression on relocation into residential care. In light of this, Special attention should have been paid to his behaviours with a low threshold for case conferencing to guide a patient-centred behavioural management plan. Instead, what transpired was a normalisation of Mr X's threatening and aggressive behaviours, as those expected of his dementia, to the detriment of Mr NC's safety. The latter was not able to advocate for his own safety, his family were not informed of the risks to his well-being, and ultimately, the facility failed to provide Mr NC with a safe home. Let's now listen to a description of our second case report titled, Not So Great Expectations. Not So Great Expectations. Case Pracy author, Dr Huang Nguyen. Clinical Summary. Mrs. HP was diagnosed with dementia in 2011 and entered a residential aged care facility in 2015 due to wandering behaviours. She was admitted to a memory support unit within the facility that was designed to provide dementia-specific care for 11 residents. By 2016, Mrs. HP had become frailer and bed-bound. Mr. Z was a resident of the same facility during the same period. He was physically very able, but had some joint pains from osteoarthritis, which he was on Norspan transdermal patch, an appearance for constipation. Mr. Z was in the facility with severe dementia and was no longer able to recognise his family or engage in coherent conversation. He often appeared to talk to people who were not present and could be verbally and or physically aggressive. These episodes of aggression were largely directed towards care staff and were usually verbal rather than physical in nature. Records from January 2016 to April 2016 indicated that Mr. Z exhibited instances of verbal and or physical aggression approximately three to four times per month. On the 13th of April 2016, Mr. Z had an unwitnessed fall out of bed and was transferred to a hospital for examination where he was diagnosed with two broken ribs. On return to the residential aged care facility, 
the dose of his nausepan patch was increased, and ordine, a morphine-based syrup, was added to manage the pain he had from the new fractures. In the following months of May and June, there was a noticeable escalation in Mr. Z's aggressive and violent behaviours. There were 22 instances of verbal and 29 instances of physical aggression reported. These episodes of aggression were largely directed at care staff. However, on several occasions, Mr. Z was found lying on the beds of other residents and initiating physical assaults or threats towards other residents. This included grabbing the wrists of other residents in a forceful manner. The electronic records for this period described him as delusional and refusing his medications. The GP was asked to review Mr. Z's medications for aggression. On the 8th of June, the GP prescribed an increased dose of risperidone to reduce antisocial and aggressive behaviours. On the 20th of June, Mr. Z physically assaulted another resident by pushing him over from his chair onto the ground. He also punched a staff member in the jaw with a closed fist. Mr. Z was administered 2 millilitres of ordine for agitation. After this, the GP adjusted the dosages of risperidone and clonazepam. The GP also prescribed epilim, sodium valproate, and ordine prorenata, PRN or as required, for pain. The registered nurse, RN, who was on at the time, made a note that a referral to the National Dementia Behaviour Management Advisory Service, DBMAS, a geriatric referral service, or a geriatrician may be required. The manager of the facility made a note of a referral to a geriatrician. On the 1st of July, the manager of the facility completed a physical behaviour assessment for Mr Z, which noted concerning behaviours of grabbing onto people, striking others, pinching others, banging self or furniture, pushing, spitting, throwing things, destroying property, hurt self or others, eating or drinking inappropriate substances, inappropriate disrobing, inability to sit still and repetitious mannerisms and stereotypic movement. On the 14th of July, Mr. Z had a settled morning and interacted positively with staff and other residents in communal areas. At 14.05 hours, one of the care staff heard screaming from Mrs. HB's room. When she arrived at the scene, she found Mr. Z standing next to Mrs. HB, holding her arm and speaking to her calmly that he was not trying to harm her, but just trying to get the poison out. The care staff recalled seeing Mrs. HB's left leg was next to her right ear. Mrs. HB was transferred to an acute care hospital where she underwent surgery for fractures. However, due to her fragile skeletal structure and frailty, she suffered complications post-operatively. Following consultation with her family, she was kept comfortable and subsequently died nine days after the incident. Mr. Z was admitted to a different hospital and on the 19th of July was transferred to an older person's mental health unit for management of agitation, paranoia and hallucinations. It was here that his nausepan patch and other opioid analgesic medications were ceased. He was also prescribed aperients and fleet enemas for constipation. While he remained confused, his aggressive behaviour settled with increasing compliance with medications. About four weeks later, he was transferred to an intermediate psychogeriatric facility. Pathology the autopsy report listed Mrs. HB's direct cause of death as complications of femoral, radial and ulnar fractures. A significant condition contributing to the death, but not related to the cause of it, was Alzheimer's disease. Investigation An inquest which was held over five days to ascertain whether appropriate measures were undertaken by the facility and staff to mitigate Mr. Z's behaviours leading up to the incident in question. 
Expert opinions from geriatric and mental health medical practitioners were heard, and statements were received from care staff and executives employed by the aged care providers. The Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission was one of the eight parties represented at the inquest. Information obtained through questioning and interviews with the staff and GP involved in Mr Z's care revealed some of the pertinent aspects about staffing and processes at the facility. In 2016, the memory support unit was staffed by two care workers during the morning and afternoon shifts and one care worker overnight. A lifestyle officer was present during the day to provide diversional therapy to residents, including a sundown program between 1400 hours and 1900 hours daily. A single registered nurse was on duty on site from 0800 hours to 1600 hours and on call after hours for the whole 50-bed facility. The handover process in the facility comprised of a face-to-face -face meeting at shift change conducted by the facility's manager or RN on duty. This meeting was guided by a handover sheet where staff members could provide a written handover about residents for staff on the next shift. In addition, Staff members were expected to read and sign a communication book with instructions from the manager at the beginning of each shift. Staff members were also required to read progress notes for each resident since their last shift on the facility's electronic system. According to a care service employee, if she were to witness an incident of resident aggression, she would be obligated to report it to the RN, documented in the electronic records, and fill out an incident form that went to the facility manager. However, Acts of agitation or delusional behaviour that did not lead to an incident were unlikely to be reported. The lifestyle officer for the facility referred to an incident where Mr Z held her wrist, saying, I could break your wrist. She did not see this as an aggressive incident to report. The RN for the facility explained that each resident had an individualised care plan that was reviewed every three months. This would include the identification of aggressive behaviours and strategies for staff to manage them. However, the care plan did not formulate or review the behaviours or formulate an alternative approach in the event of escalation. Behavioural charting could be requested by the RN or the facility manager to help delineate and assess triggering behaviours. A case conference was held for residents within 6-12 to 12 weeks of their admission to the facility and annually thereafter. A review or case conference with the GP and family could be arranged on an ad hoc basis if there was an incident or change in condition, at the discretion of management. The visiting GP did not have their own access to the electronic record. However, they could have access to the communication book and the doctor's book that contained notes from staff about residents. It was common for a staff member to be available to provide a summary of new issues to the GP during her weekly Wednesday visit to the facility. A case conference was not held to discuss Mr Z's behaviours, nor were any referrals made to DBMAS or a geriatrician. The inquest found that the staff at the care facility failed to detect escalations in Mr Z's aggressive behaviours as attention was focused on the perceived issue of pain from the rib fractures. There did not appear to be an analysis of what was happening and why, nor any formal evaluation in place to establish if any of the interventions were effective. This contributed to a failure to effectively convey the extent of behaviours to the GP or to hold case conferences about Mr Z. In particular, the incident of physical violence on the 20th of June should have prompted a conference between facility staff, the GP and Mr Z's family and involved specialist services to decrease the risk of harm to others.
The coroner found that Mrs. HB died in hospital as a direct complication of femoral, radial and ulnar fractures inflicted by fellow resident Mr. Z. The latter had advanced dementia and was not able to fully appreciate the nature or consequences of his actions, and as such, no criminal charges were laid. Recommendations The coroner made the following recommendations for better care and management of residents with dementia in specialist units like the Memory Support Unit. 1. Improved continuity of staff within the units to encourage familiarity with the residents. 2. The introduction of red flags in the electronic system to highlight various matters that need following up, such as referrals to doctors, the review of medications, and the need for a meeting with family and the treating GP. 3. Increased and ongoing dementia education for care staff, registered nurses and senior managers in relation to identification of behaviours, appropriate interventions, and basic knowledge of medications and their side effects. This should be followed by an evaluation of training provided. 4. Coordination of information between care staff, RNs, managers, and the relevant GP. Appropriate documentation of physical and verbal aggression should be kept for incidents directed both at staff and other residents. Staff should be discouraged from accepting inappropriate physical and verbal aggression as being normal. 5. Increased frequency of conferences involving RNs, the treating GP, family and the facility manager, particularly where there is an increasing frequency of problematic behaviours. Guidelines should be provided to care staff and to RNs to indicate when case conferences may be required. Consideration should be given to obtaining the views of care staff where appropriate. 6. The RN is to attend the GP clinic as well as care staff if appropriate. Those with intimate knowledge of the care of the particular resident are better placed to convey what is occurring, when it is occurring, and why it is occurring. 7. Improvement in the use of behavioural charts to assist in the practical management of residents. 8. On admission to the facility, a comprehensive multidisciplinary assessment should take place to identify possible triggers or contributing factors to any responsive behaviours of residents. 9. Senior staff and management need to be proactive about seeking outside assistance when necessary. 10. Once a resident is immobile and bedridden, Consideration of a move out of memory support unit and into the general area of the facility should be undertaken in consultation with the family. Author's Comments The Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety highlighted inadequate staffing levels, skill mix, and training as systemic problems inherent in the design and operation of the aged care system in Australia. This leads to compromised care and is most evident among residents with dementia, the core business of residential care. Studies have shown that there is a direct relationship between nursing staff mix and quality of residential aged care. In a case mix system, the minimum amount of staff time per resident day for acceptable, not good or high, care is estimated to be 30 minutes of RN time and 215 minutes of total care time, RNs and other care workers. Our current system is propped up by a workforce that is largely understaffed, underpaid and undertrained with a mix of staff, mainly comprised of personal care staff in place of RNs, that is not matched to the needs of our older residents. 
This creates a situation whereby our not-so-great expectations perpetuate aged care quality standards based on minimum acceptable standards rather than aspirations to deliver quality care. In the care setting described above, there was a great reliance on care staff to report problematic behaviours that they were inadequately trained to recognise. This led to under-reporting of incidents to more skilled nursing or management staff who have limited daily and direct resident contact and are reliant on second-hand information to manage complex residents. Indeed, everyone knew something, but no one knew enough to be concerned enough to act. A situation that contributed to the problematic behaviours of Mr Z remained underappreciated, inadequately monitored and poorly managed. Let's now listen to the expert commentary, which contains advice about where and how to ask for help in managing these complex behaviours and interactions. The segment is titled, Who Do I Call? Who Do I Call? DBMAS. Associate Professor Steve McFarlane, Specialist in the Psychiatry of Old Age, Head of Clinical Services, the Dementia Centre, Hammond Care. Services available through Dementia Support Australia. Dementia Support Australia, DSA, delivers a number of Commonwealth-funded programs comprising the Severe Behaviour Response Team, SBRT, since 2015, the National Dementia Behaviour Management Advisory Service, DBMAS, since 2016, and the Needs-Based Assessment Service that determines eligibility for entry into the Specialist Dementia Care Program, SDCP, since 2019. The service comprises a multidisciplinary workforce supported by a network of specialists in geriatric medicine and age psychiatry. Collectively, we provide consultation and advice on more than 10,000 cases annually. Referrals. Anyone can initiate a referral to Dementia Support Australia. We do not require that referrals be initiated by a general practitioner, though we would expect that a referrer would inform GPs that a referral has been made. Referrals can be made via telephone or online and are accepted for all levels of behaviour severity for clients whose behavioural symptoms are best explained by a dementia diagnosis. Referrals can be made for clients living with a home-based carer or within a Commonwealth-funded residential aged care facility. Triage and allocation. Upon referral to Dementia Support Australia, our triage process allocates a case to either the DBMAS or SBRT program according to the levels of risk posed by the behaviour. Where triage deems a DBMAS visit is necessary, our target response time is within five business days. When a referral has been allocated to SBRT, we are required to provide an on-the-ground response at the referring facility within 48 hours of the referral being accepted. Assessment and Management The approach of Dementia Support Australia is to focus on identifying the causes that contribute to behaviour change and to focus on modifying these. By far, the commonest behaviours leading to a referral are those of agitation and aggression. The commonest aggravating factor for behaviours that we have identified over the time our national database has been operating has been unidentified or undertreated pain in about 60% of referrals. An on-site visit by a Dementia Support Australia consultant typically involves direct observation of and interaction with the client, review of relevant documentation 
such as pathology results, behaviour charts, and specialist letters, along with discussion with family members and the treating GP. An individualised behaviour management plan is developed and provided to staff, with the Dementia Support Australia consultant remaining involved with the case to support staff in the implementation of the strategies provided. Focus on non-pharmacological interventions. Recognising the limited effectiveness of psychotropic medications in dementia behaviour management, as well as their significant toxicity, the Dementia Support Australia approach is to concentrate on non-pharmacological, behavioural, social and environmental interventions, rather than the prescription of psychotropics. In all SBRT cases, however, where an existing specialist medical support is not involved, the client's medical management is reviewed by one of our own medical specialists, and personalised written advice provided back to the treating general practitioner. Complex DBMAS cases receive a similar specialist medical review accompanied by direct written communication to the general practitioner. Outcomes. The overall approach has been remarkably successful, with a recent analysis of almost 6,000 cases seen by the service able to demonstrate reductions in behaviour severity of between 60 to 70 percent, and published in a peer-reviewed journal. Specialist Dementia Care Program. Clients who experience severe and enduring behaviours as a result of their dementia, despite intensive management by a specialist service, are eligible to undergo a needs-based assessment by Dementia Support Australia for entry into an SDCP. These units, based on a small cottage-based environment with increased staffing levels and access to weekly specialist medical input, have been opening progressively since 2019. There are currently 10 units established, with a total of 35, at least one in each of the primary health networks, planned to become operational over the next three years. SDCP aims to provide intensive behaviour management services to residents for up to 12 months prior to transition back into mainstream care. To make a referral. Referrals can be made by telephone 1800 699 799 or online via dementia.com.au slash contact slash referral. The service operates 24 hours per day, 365 days per year. Let's now listen to the second commentary, which is an informal conversation drawing on the experiences of Dr. Stephen McFarlane, who coordinates a team of geriatricians and old age psychiatrists who provide clinical support to the National Dementia Behaviour Management Advisory Service and Severe Behaviour Response Team programs. This segment's titled, A Geriatrician Talks to a Psychiatrist. Commentary 2. A Geriatrician Talks to a Psychiatrist. Professor Joseph Ibrahim asks a few questions of Dr. Stephen McFarlane, who graduated from Monash University in 1991 and spent the next 17 years at Peninsula Health prior to becoming a psychiatrist in 2003 and being appointed Director of Age Psychiatry in 2005. In 2008, he spent some time on secondment as Deputy Chief Psychiatrist for Victoria prior to being appointed as Associate Professor and Director of Age Psychiatry at Alfred Health, where he remained until formally joining the Dementia Centre at Hammond Care in 2016. Stephen coordinates a team of geriatricians and old age psychiatrists who provide clinical support to the National DBMAS, Dementia Behaviour Management Advisory Service, and SBRT, Severe Behaviour Response Team, programs. 
Question. What could the people who are referring residents to the service do that would help you during that first contact? Dementia Support Australia has a number of intake criteria for service eligibility. Most importantly, we require that the person being referred has a diagnosis of dementia, progressive neurodegenerative disease. We do not have expertise in managing behaviours that arise from causes such as psychiatric illness, acquired brain injury, alcohol-related brain damage or intellectual disability. And if a subsequent diagnosis of dementia is made in such a person, we need to satisfy ourselves that the behaviours prompting the referral best reflect the dementia, rather than any of these comorbidities. Often in residential care, a formal diagnosis of dementia is lacking. When this is the case, we take context into account. For example, if behaviours occur in an 85-year-old person who has resided in care for some years with none of the comorbidities listed above, but has demonstrated progressive cognitive and functional decline whilst in care, we would assume on the basis of this information that a dementia was in fact present and would not insist on a formal diagnosis being made prior to accepting the referral. Question. What's your most memorable case? Our work primarily involves assessment of the causes of behaviours in our clients and providing individualised non-pharmacological management plans that aim to address these causes. Having said this, our dementia consultants are supported by a network of geriatricians and old age psychiatrists around the country who provide advice around medication management when this is appropriate. One particular case that sticks in my mind illustrates the importance of considering medications, not only in managing behaviours, but in contributing to the behaviour. This was a woman in her 70s with Parkinson's disease, dementia. She had been in care for three years and was referred for what was described as aggressive striking out at staff during personal care and upon redirection. Our assessment determined that her aggressive striking out was in fact a drug-induced movement disorder caused by her high dose of Parkinson's disease medications, which had been initiated by a neurologist many years earlier, yet had not been subject to review since she entered care. In addition to the non-pharmacological strategies provided to her carers, advice was provided to a general practitioner about the reduction of dopaminergic medications, with the result that, not only did her aggression resolve as her movement disorder improved, her gait improved significantly, and the frequency of falls was greatly reduced. Question. What does the team get asked to do that is not your job? The most heartbreaking cases are those where clients are out of scope for our service, but have also been rejected by other service providers, thus falling between the gaps. Typically, such referrals are for older adults who have behavioural problems arising from alcohol use, head injury, intellectual disability or stroke. Brain injury services seem to have an age-related cut-off for service eligibility, and being a resident in an aged care facility also seems to be a barrier for service eligibility. People with an intellectual disability who may have received specialist support for all their lives often find themselves ineligible for these same services once they cross the 65-year barrier or when they enter aged care. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember, the online print editions are available at our website at www.thecommunicase.com, which also include a list of resources and any references that the experts recommended. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.